start with a story. This took place about 15 years ago. I was driving up to the UP with a friend, actually with two friends, to go camping and hiking out at Pictured Rock. Some of you guys probably know that place. It's like the most spectacular place to hike in Michigan. So having moved from Indiana not too long before that, I actually didn't know a whole lot about the UP. In fact, I didn't even know what the UP was probably until I was 23. So I was a little bit naive about what to expect. And we took my car and we loaded all the camping gear up on the top on one of those top carrying cases and we started driving. And by the time we reached the Mackinac Bridge, it was about sunset and it was almost out of gas. And so I'm looking around, I'm like, okay, there's lots of gas stations, but the traffic was incredible because it was one of those days where the wind was so gusty coming across the bridge that the police were escorting trucks and vans across one by one because they were afraid they'd blow off. Turned out we had to be escorted also because of that carrying case. So seeing all this traffic, I just figured, well, we'll just get gas on the other side instead of trying to merge back in. Yeah, I hear you giggling because little did I know, there is like nothing on the other side of that bridge. At least there wasn't then. And so having grown up in Indiana where you can get gas within a few miles of pretty much anywhere you are, I thought, well, okay, I'm not too worried. We'll just get on a highway and we'll eventually see some little places you can get off. And as you know, if you're going down that highway through the middle of the UP, there are no such places. So we finally see a gas station up ahead at this little place, but it's like late on a Saturday night and it's closed. And so I'm starting to get a little bit freaked out. It was dark, you know, there's woods on both sides, and we're starting to resign ourselves to the idea of camping by the side of the road. And of course, this is in the era where we didn't have cell phones. I actually didn't own a cell phone, um, I think, until I was like 25. So I said a little prayer. I'm not sure at the time if I actually believed in God, much less a good God. But by some prayer or some other miracle, we actually made it to that town called, is it Saney? Saney. It had one gas station that we were able to fill up on. And I had been in the wilderness in my life before. I'd been out in the desert of Utah and such. But this was the first time in my life where I'd actually been out that far in the middle of nowhere without my parents. And it really struck me because I was 23, I was a single woman, it was a little overwhelming, and I knew that I felt really isolated from help should we need it. I felt very vulnerable. Well, sometimes people talk about wilderness experiences on their spiritual paths, right? About feeling vulnerable and isolated and distant from God. And when that goes on for a long time, one of the writers, St. John of the Cross, he describes it as being like a dark night of the soul. And it seems like almost every pilgrim on our Christian path enters into at least one of these stretches in their lives. And sometimes this dark night can last for weeks, sometimes it's months, and sometimes it can feel like it goes on for years. And when they read some of the letters that Mother Teresa had written near the end of her life, it's pretty apparent that she felt like she was in one of these long, dark nights through her final years. She was probably also depressed, which can add to that feeling of disconnection from self and from others and from God. So I've been thinking a lot about these wilderness texts, especially the ones with Hagar and Moses and Jesus and, yes, David, who we've been talking about. Because if wilderness is the metaphor that's used by so many faith practitioners for this experience of feeling like God is distant and you don't know what's ahead and you're feeling really vulnerable, well, there must be a reason that that word was chosen. There's a reason that's the metaphor. And so maybe there are some spiritual insights that we can glean from the actual experiences of these men and women of God. And we're talking about this in our current sermon series, Integrity and Influence, because going through such a season, I think, seems to be a prerequisite 
for greater spiritual leadership or influence. I'm going to say that again. That going through these sort of wilderness seasons seems to be a prerequisite for greater spiritual leadership or influence. Integrity is often tested and honed in that desert place. And sometimes God allows us to go through these seasons of feeling vulnerable to examine us and to refine us. And these seasons can produce immense spiritual growth if we lean into God. So we've been using these David stories to talk about integrity and influence. And today I want to pull from some of the stories that are found in 1 Samuel chapters 21 to 31, where David is essentially a vagabond And he's wandering around leading a small group of men through the wilderness. And he's been on the run. And he's been on the run because when he was a teenager, he was actually anointed to be the king of Israel by a prophet named Samuel. And so David, after he was anointed to be the next king of Israel, he grew to be a fierce and respected warrior. We talked about David and Goliath a couple of weeks ago. And he became very close with the royal family because he would go and he would play music that was soothing to King Saul. But then this king, Saul, the current king, he becomes jealous of David because David is beloved by the people. They love him, and he's successful on the battlefield. He's more successful than Saul. And so Saul was jealous of his popularity, and he feared that David would be made king in his place. Or at the very least, he was afraid that the people would make David king instead of Saul's son, Jonathan. And so Saul decided to kill David. And David realized this dynamic. It wasn't subtle. Saul took a spear and threw it at him. So David flees for his life. And word of this spread pretty quickly, and pretty soon David's family went and found him and joined him because they knew that pretty soon they would probably be killed as well. And so David is joined by his family as well as by 400 other men. And the story tells us that these were men who were like in dire straits. They were in a lot of debt, and they were embittered with the current regime. So David is drawing here from the poor and the discontent. And David and his ragtag group of men, they had been running from place to place as Saul and his army pursued them. And then one of the places where David and his men were hiding is that they were camping in a forest on the side of a large hill. So they're camping on the side of this hill. And 1 Samuel 23, 24 says, David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the desert south of the wasteland. Right? In one sentence, wilderness desert, wasteland. The text is making sure that we know this story is taking place out in the boonies. And Saul's spies, they figure out where David and his men are, and so what they do is they start to advance up the opposite side of that hill. And at the same time that they're advancing up the side of that hill, Saul's also sending some of his men around both sides of the base of that mountain so that way he could try and cut off any retreat that David might try to make. And it nearly worked. Except that at the very last minute, a messenger came up to Saul and he said, look, there's a major attack going on in our country. It's underway by our nation's fiercest enemy, the Philistines. And so Saul, he called the army off and they scrambled to go and meet this Philistine threat. And so meanwhile, David and his men were able to flee from that forested mountain and go out and hide out in another enclave called Ein Gedi. And so here we have Saul. He's out chasing David and his men while Israel's greatest major national enemy is sending troops in to topple the country. Right? And Saul, who's charged with defending his nation as their leader, is completely neglecting one of his major priorities as the king. 
in order to go and hunt down a man based on a personal vendetta because of his own personal fear of losing power. Right? He's not prioritizing like a competent king because of his fear. Well, meanwhile, Saul's off fighting the Philistines, and David and his men go to a place called Ein Gedi. Now, Ein Gedi is an interesting place. Again, it's in the middle of the desert wilderness on the southern part of the Dead Sea. So some of you probably aren't map people, but I love maps, and it's helpful for me to kind of picture it. So Israel, it was a pretty long country, and about in the middle is Jerusalem. And just to the east of Jerusalem, you've got this good stretch of deserty area. And then you have the Dead Sea, and then you have the mountains of what is now Jordan. So David and his men, they're hiding out in this deserty area that's east of Jerusalem. And it's got this like crusty, dusty, oh, that rhymed, crusty, dusty hills and mountains and cliffs. And it, um, it's like these giant hills and plateaus that are out there. And if you're in this region and you have more than 400 people with you, you have to start thinking about how you're going to get them food and how you're going to get them water. Because the Dead Sea is no good to drink, right? It's filled with salt, as are most of the springs that feed into the Dead Sea. But there is one place along that sea where there's an oasis, right? where there's some fresh water coming up, and that is Ein Gedi, where David went. And it literally translates as kid spring, like a goat kid, not like a kid kid. Right, so it's like a goat spring. So I've actually hiked to Ein Gedi. So if you're out there along the rocks, you're, like, you're going through the desert, and then it's just really striking, because all of a sudden you start to see a few palm trees and grass. And when you get out and you start to climb these rocky trails that are sometimes cliffs, and you're winding through these high crags, eventually you come to this pretty good-sized um, waterfall that is called the Falls of David, or David's Falls. And there's all this green grass and lush plants that are running down the side of the spring in the middle of the desert. And so there are views where you can look out for a really long way because you're high up, you can look out over into Jordan. And this is a great place for a military hideout because you can grow a little bit of food in that land that has some water. You're up at a high place, so you have some vantage points there. And there's also tons of caves in the area. So the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in this region by the Dead Sea. Most of the caves are these really dry caves. And so David and his men, they're hunkering down there at Ein Gedi. But after Saul was finished fighting the Philistines and beating them back, he got word about where David was. And so he took his army and he brought them out to Ein Gedi in pursuit of him. And so David and his crew... They went into the back, probably one of those major caves winding through the mountains, and they hid in the back of this cave. And it so happened that King Saul happened to wander into the mouth of that very cave to relieve himself, not suspecting what he had chanced into. And so one of David's men whispers to him, he says, look, God told you he would deliver your enemy into your hands and that you would be able to do with him whatever seems good in your eyes. Go. Now this, to me, is a moment of testing of David. Right? God has said, I will deliver your, hand, your enemy into your hands, and you can go and do whatever seems good to you. So what seems good to you, David? Right? It's a test of David's character. And David didn't kill Saul like his men hoped that he would. Instead, it says he stealthily approached Saul from behind and cut off a piece of his cloak. And David was immediately remorseful of what he had done, so he quietly went back and he told his men, he said, God forbid I should have done this to the Lord's anointed king. 
because Saul also had been anointed by the prophet Samuel. And so David wouldn't let his men go and overtake Saul in the cave in that vulnerable position, but he let him go. And so Saul leaves the cave. He's none the wiser that this has happened. And David goes after him. And he stands in front of the cave and he yells, My Lord, the king. My Lord, the king. And Saul looked back at him. And David, it says, he fell to his knees. And then he put his face to the ground. He's lying prostrate before him. And he says, why are you listening to the people who are telling you that I want to kill you? I don't want to kill you. Here's the proof. I've got a corner of your cloak. I could have killed you just now had I wanted to. Who are you chasing? I'm like a dead dog. I'm I'm like a flea. I am nothing to you. And Saul says, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul started to cry. And he seemed remorseful that he'd been trying to kill David. Well, in return, David had spared him. So there are a few things that I notice in this story. The first one is that David shows really good character under pressure. It's one thing to be gracious and compassionate to others when we're doing well and when things are going well for us. It's another to be gracious and compassionate when someone is out to actively harm you or your reputation. And part of the wilderness experience is feeling that kind of pressure, that kind of vulnerability, that sort of pressing in from all sides. And we humans, we have all kinds of emotional responses when we're backed into a corner like that. For some of us, we can try and micromanage everything around us, right? Because everything feels so out of control that we're trying to control anything we can possibly control. Some people feel anger, and they lash out in anger. Some people withdraw. That probably tends to be my human response. And it's hard to treat people around us with dignity unless we're doing this work to embrace that place of vulnerability and trust that God will lead us in ways that are good for us and that God will have our back. And David feels vulnerable, and yet he trusts in God, and he still treats Saul with dignity in the midst of this. The second thing is that right after David snips Saul's cloak, it says he feels remorse and he wishes that he hadn't done it. Now, this could be self-interest, right? David had been anointed to be the next king of Israel. In his heart of hearts, I think he believed that. He's got his gang of followers right behind him, and all of a sudden he's like, oh man, if I'm going to be the king, I don't want them to do that to me, and so I need to make sure that they know that this isn't okay. You know, it could have been a little bit of like leadership by example. But there's other places where David experiences remorse, and so this seems a little more genuine to me. And I think this is a key difference between David and Saul. Right? There's this other story where David is ready to go and kill this man who hasn't been very nice to him. And a woman named Abigail, who eventually became his wife, goes up to him and is like, this is wrong, what are you doing? And David is actually able to say to a woman in that time, you're right and I'm wrong. Thank you for sparing me from doing something I would lead to greater violence. I think it's genuine. And even in that story that Hayden shared with us last week about David taking Bathsheba for himself and then going and killing her husband, we see remorse after that about his actions, right? A prophet goes up to him and calls him out and says, God is displeased with what you have done. And David like rends his clothes and he is just heartbroken. So at times he can show very bad character like all of us can. But he's able to show regret and to be able to address his own weaknesses. But Saul, right? Saul, we saw kind of apologize to David at the end of the scene in the cave, right? He says, is this your voice, my son, David? 
God bless you for sparing my life. But the thing about Saul is that his apologies are never sincere. He left David alone for a time, but it's just very soon after that he's coming after him again. And if you read through these stories, it's like Saul is like obsessed with David. He wants him dead. And twice he comes out to him in the wilderness and David almost kills him and doesn't. And Saul says, I'm sorry, I'll leave you alone. And then, of course, he doesn't. He proves himself false with his actions. And you can't trust someone who can't own their mistakes and at least attempt to make lasting changes, right? Saul is untrustworthy. I'm going to change the story I was going to tell for this because we actually heard a great story on NPR on our way into church today that illustrates this. So there is this woman, she was being interviewed, and she used to work for The Bachelor. You know that TV show, The Bachelor? Yeah, I, I probably shouldn't admit to like texting it with my sister and like making fun of it. I haven't watched it in a few years, but it's pretty wretched. And so this woman was in her early 20s, <laughs> and she said that it was her job to try and get all of these women who were trying to win this man's heart to like spill their guts to her so that she could then betray them to the other women in the house so that they can try and make these women cry on camera, right? That was her job, to stir up the drama, right? And so she did this for three years before she couldn't live with herself anymore. And so she's now gone on to write another series, I think this is what the interview was about, called Unreality, where she's kind of showcasing the behind-the-scenes aspects of these reality shows and how awful they are. But the, the interviewer asked a very keen question. She said, okay, but you were there for three years. What did you like about the job? And the answer was like so honest, it was striking. She said, you know, in your early 20s, she's like, I just felt like I was in a light, part of my life where I felt powerless, and there was, it felt powerful. It felt really powerful. I was making money, and sometimes when you feel powerless, it feels really good to exert your power over other people in that way. And I just thought, whoa, like you don't hear that very often in the corporate world or hardly anywhere where somebody just says, yeah, I made that mistake. I don't want to be that person anymore, so here's what I'm going to do to try and change it. And I think that that is really stunning. And by modeling that, we can really influence the culture around us in our own workplaces and lives. The third thing that I notice about the wilderness experience, and I can say this from personal experience, is that it will drain you of any shred of pride that you have. Any shred of pride you harbor if you live fully into it. And what's amazing to me about this scene at the cave at Ein Gedi is that David, when he comes out of that cave and he calls after Saul, he says, my Lord, the king. He doesn't say, hey, jerk, or something much worse, which is what I would want to do. Why are you trying to kill me? And David, you know, he has every right to be furious. He has every right to want revenge on Saul and to defend himself. You know, he's being hunted like an animal by this king. But David, inside, he knows that God has given him a promise that he will be the next king. But it sure doesn't feel like it. And it doesn't look like there's any possible way right now that that's going to happen, much less anytime soon. He has nowhere to go. Anywhere he leaves, out of Ein Gedi, he's going into enemy territory. He has very little feud. He has few weapons. And he just has this raggedy band of discontents who are far outnumbered by the king's men. And in this state, there is no room for pride. I think David's actions reflect this. He doesn't say, look, Saul, I have a right to be treated with dignity. I'm going to be the next king. You need to treat me like this is so. And by the way, I'm a war hero, and I have saved your behind on more than one occasion, so you are going to back off. Which honestly, I think there's nothing wrong with that response. 
That response would be true. I could look at that and say, yeah, that's a prophetic declaration, you know, of him calling out Saul, and that would be fine, but that's not what David does, right? He falls to his knees, and he prostrates himself before Saul, acknowledging Saul has power over him, and that he is submitting to the current king. I mean, this is one of the stark contrasts between David and Saul in these 11 chapters, if you read them. It's how David continuously treats people with respect, even when they disrespect him, while Saul is always treating people with contempt. And to me, this is a humble move that displays his humility and his lack of pride. I mean, if he had had people yelling, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has tens of thousands, if he had had any you know, little shred of having a large head over that, this experience was taking that away. And last, I think David discovered some of his limits. And one of the great treasures of the wilderness experience is that you quickly figure out what you're able to do and what you're not able to do. And you figure out what you're willing to do and what you're not willing to do. And it turns out that David was not willing to kill Saul. And he may not have known that until he was face-to-face with the opportunity. In another one of the stories, David and his men are going out to battle. And one-third of his men are too tired to go, like 200 of them. But David was able to keep going, and in that way, I was like, he could discover how far he could push his physical strength. And I know that when I've gone through wilderness-type seasons myself, I have found strength in ways that I never knew I had and that I wouldn't have known had I not gone through them. And I'll give you a very personal example here. You know, when LGBTQ people are outed publicly, as I was, some are understandably suicidal. You know, I think of my friend Jane Clementi, her son Tyler committed suicide after he was outed by his uh, roommate via the internet. And I 110% get that. You know, there was a time when I was going through that and I thought, if I didn't have Rachel and a supportive family and friends, I don't know what would have happened. But I also discovered, going through that, some strengths that I didn't know I possessed, that I didn't even imagine that I would find. So I learned how resilient that I am. I realized that you can be publicly shamed and humiliated, and you can carry the public shame of an entire community, and yet you can still create a happy life, and you have community, and we built a community of hope out of this. I learned how to trust myself and my instincts. I started to look back over the last few years and I thought, oh, a lot of my gut instincts were correct. I can trust myself. And there are other hard-won, sometimes surprising, sometimes lovely self-discoveries that take place in these difficult and vulnerable seasons, whether you've lost somebody close to you, whether you're having trouble at your job, no matter what that is. You find some of your strengths, you find your weaknesses. I learned some of my weaknesses and what I'm not able to do some of the things that my body won't let me do because of the trauma. But at the same time, I've also discovered God's presence in very precious and intimate ways that I never knew existed. And so the wilderness is a good place that can help you identify your strengths, your weaknesses, and your limits, which are helpful to know. We talk in Muotion a lot about connection. That's part of being connected to yourself, to know these things about yourself and to be able to communicate those things accurately to other people. That's part of what causes people to trust you and to want to be influenced by you in your lives is can you adequately communicate your strengths, your weaknesses, and your boundaries. If you want to hear a really good talk on trust, Brene Brown does this like 20-minute segment. I hate to say it's like on the Oprah channel or something. But it's called, I think it's called The Anatomy of Trust. And that that, that is golden. It is so worth watching. 
So this week, I don't usually suggest homework or whatever, but if you're up for it, I would suggest reading 1 Samuel chapters 21 to 31. And these are all of the stories about David in the wilderness. And read them and compare David and Saul. Try to see why is it that people trusted David? Why is it that they wanted him to lead them and they didn't want Saul to lead them? Why was David described as a man after God's own heart, even though he does a couple of pretty terrible things in there? Why was he so beloved by the people? You know, when I was reading through those stories, these were just some of the things that I noticed, right? That he's competent, he's humble, he's a man who has an open connection with God and is talking to God and depending on him for all of his next moves. That's something, I mean, I'd like to do a whole sermon on that maybe when I get back from vacation. But I loved what Lisa shared this morning because I thought this is exactly what David was doing. It's like such a great example. It was like, she's like, I need to know, Lord, am I going to join this board or not? And he answered, right, that we can ask God for that next move or for confirmation and expect that God will actually talk back to us. So David had an open communication with God while Saul did not. He was a man who was able and willing to admit his, his um, mistakes. He was obedient to God. He's a picture of a man who trusts God and depends on him for all of his needs. And so there's a lot of leadership wisdom to be gleaned from these stories. And I would just say to you, if you feel like you're going through one of those wilderness sort of experiences right now, you can read that and I hope you would find hope. And whether you're going through one of those times right now or not, I think there's a very practical question that this can glean for us in our everyday lives. And that's, if you're making a decision or you're finding you're acting in a certain way, you can ask yourself the question, am I operating or making this decision out of fear and insecurity? Or am I doing this out of love and out of wisdom and out of the good for other people? I think that is some of the wisdom from David and Saul. Let's take a couple of minutes of silence here. I'd like to invite you, we like to do corporate silence for a couple of minutes here. It doesn't have to be perfectly silent, silent, right? Kids and people make noise and that is fine. And if you'd like to, what I'd like to invite you to do is just relax into the presence of Jesus and see if the Holy Spirit brings to mind something going on in one of your relationships or something going on at work and you can just ask him, how can I better communicate either my strength, my weakness, or my limit in this space? And we'll just invite the Holy Spirit. I'll keep my eye on the clock. So we just say, Holy Spirit, come and be talking to us. We are listening.
this could be nothing, but I've got a little sense, I'd be a little nudge from God that there's a couple of you here who just feel like you feel like you haven't heard from God in a long time, like you've been trying and you feel like you're just hearing nothing. And so I'd just like to invite you, if you feel like that's you, that after we take communion, we've got a prayer station that's in the back and Gretchen oversees that. There's some other people who would be willing to just pray with you and just see if maybe um, the presence of God can be felt in new ways in your life this week. All right.